0: Right, well, where should we begin? Why don't we begin with prayer? It's like all these things running through my head about this sermon. Let's just calm down, slow down. Let's ask God for help and to give, us, give, us, give me clarity so that you can hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, I'm just so thankful for worship. Lord, that's what you desire, and we have the awesome privilege of doing Worshipping the Lord God of heaven and earth, who is and was and is to come. And we thank you for that, Lord God. And Lord, I ask you this morning that you would speak through me as I proclaim your word. That you would show us as a church, Lord God, how to remain united for your glory. And until you return and crush Satan, ultimately. And we thank you for that, Lord God. And we all pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Well, before we get to Romans, as we're entering the last chapter of Romans, I think we're just going to have two more sermons in Romans, and then uh, praying about where to go next. So, just pray for me that I that I clearly just preach what God wants the church to hear over the next for the next book of the Bible. And if you have suggestions, let me know. For as long as it's not the Song of Solomon. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm <laughs> just kidding. There you go. <laughs> well, the title of this morning's message is appropriately for Memorial Weekend, United We Stand. There was a, a, a famous book called Art of War, maybe you've heard of it, by San Su. And he says this, the supreme art of war is to subdue the enemy without fighting. If you could subdue the enemy without fighting, then obviously easy one of the ways that our enemy does that if he can't destroy you is to divide us having a divided church you know is the best way to defeat it let it implode within and really that's what we see in our society today over and over again the attack on not just physically the church but church doctrine church church beliefs the bible itself if the enemy can destroy our faith and trust in scripture then we have no foundation to stand if we see the enemy in the world through the world trying to destroy our families trying to destroy our children and we as a church need to stand united not only in this church but even in our homes i think of our homes how marriage is being under attack and unity in the home is a beautiful thing. I mean, there's nothing worse for me than to hear my children fighting over something. It's like, oh, why can't you guys just get along? You know, and I think the Lord looks at us as well as the church and say, why can't you guys just get along? And again, as I said, unity in the home is a beautiful thing between husband and wife, siblings, parent, children. So much so, I believe that the Lord wrote in the book of Ephesians how marriage was to be a picture of Christ's love for the church. So, here's a quick little marriage counseling for all of us or reminder about marriage. And I want to read this before we get into our text because, again, it's important about the unity. God wants the husband and wife in the home to be united because if Satan can destroy that, think of all the ripple effects that has down in our society. So in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, this won't come up on the screen, but I'll just read it. The Apostle Paul writes, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And then this is the, I feel, as a husband, the most important part. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, and that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. You see the comparison? He's a husband, love your wife, nourish her, cherish her, just as Christ does to the church. He says, because, verse 30, because we are members of the body, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one, flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. You see, the foundation of our society, of all society, is the husband and wife relationship. It's a picture to the world of Christ's love for the church. So that's why we are to remain united, one, in our marriages, fighting for our marriages, doing all that we can to strengthen our marriages. And husbands, I will urge you because of what Scripture says, look at your wife, cherish her, nourish her. Are you doing that? This is a foundation for unity within our society and our church, and more importantly, proclaims Christ's love to this world. I would also say unity in the church getting to our text, you're like, "I thought we were in Romans. Unity in the church is also a beautiful thing. If you've ever been part of a church split or church, you know, fractions and fighting, it's horrible, it's terrible. But unity in the church as well is also a witness to this world of God's love. Jesus himself said to his apostles in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. So also you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Unity in the church is so important vitally and very important not just for the health of the church but to glorify god so paul here as we now get to our text was trying to create a sense of unity if you've been with us for a while you know what's going on here in the book of romans paul is trying to create a sense of unity between himself and the church in rome that he's never visited for a number of reasons And so I think in this text, as now we go to Romans chapter 16, Paul is going to illustrate for us and encourage unity within this church in Rome. And he does it in a number of ways, and that will be our application this morning. But let's look at that, this text this morning, with that in mind. The unity of the church. And he says this, starting in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 20, I think. Yes, verse 20, so... Here's what he writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is in Centuria. Now we're going to go through a bunch of names and bear with me as we go through it. And I would have I loved to just study each person and we could have extended this, ser- this series for another year, but maybe I would only find that exciting. But we're going to move through quickly here. We'll touch on each, some of these individuals. So. Commend to them, Phoebe, verse 2, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and that you help her in whatever she may have need of you. For she herself has been a helper of many and myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Appatutus, my beloved, who was the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Appalachius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker. In Christ and Stachis, my beloved, greet Apelles, the approved in Christ, greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus, greet Herodian, my kinsman, this is my favorite name, greet those of the household of Narcissus. There's just so much irony there, but at least Narcissus got mentioned. (laughs) Greet those. In the household of narcissists who are in the Lord. Does anybody? I just can't stop. <laughs> Does anybody see a list of baby names here? If you want, There you go. Greet Tryphiana and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord. Also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Plegon, Hermes. Patropos, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet Philegas and Julia, Nereus and his sister and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learn and turn away from them. For such men are slaves not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise what is, in what is good and innocent and what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Whew. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) So let's go back to the beginning. Again, as I started saying, united, we stand. And again, this is the message that I see here. The Apostle Paul is trying to convey to the church. He wants them to be united for a number of reasons, and we'll see that in a moment. So how does he encourage unity? Well, number one, he does this by speaking well of, of the believers, and in this letter, he is written over and over again in commending the church at Rome. But here in particular, as you see, he mentions a number of people, and he speaks well of them. He describes the believers in the following ways, and we're not going to go through the whole list again, but just here's some of the ways that he describes the church at Rome. He says that they are a servant of God, a helper of many, fellow workers, as working hard for the church, fellow prisoners, approved in Christ, workers in the Lord, those who work hard for the Lord, a choice man in the Lord, and one who has been a mother to him. He's encouraging this church before he gets there. It's apparent that he knows some of these people that are in Rome, even though he's never been there. Somehow in his missionary journeys, he's met them, or he's heard about them, and so he's commanding them and speaking well of them. If you want to create unity, you don't, you know, disrupt the boat before you get there right very practical he speaks well of the believers and it's sincere though he knows about them the apostle paul would not be insincere in this manner so he encourages unity before he comes he wants to be well received as we learned over the past few weeks he has a number of reasons why he's coming to the church and so he wants to create harmony and unity between them see that they're on the same side they're for the same things And it helps that he knows some of them already, and maybe they can speak for him before he gets there so that he's well-received by the leaders of the church. So one way he encourages unity is to speak well of all the believers. The second way that he does it is he wants them to be welcoming. Let's go back to Phoebe at the very beginning, and look at what he says about Phoebe. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is in Sancria, So apparently, many commentators believe that he actually sent this letter with Phoebe to give to the church at Rome. And he's telling them to receive her and to welcome her. Be welcoming to our sister. Why? Well, because she's a servant of the church. And this church that he's talking about is believed to be near Corinth, maybe a sister church to the church in Corinth. And so Phoebe was well-respected and trusted by the Apostle Paul, he sent a letter with her to give to the church at Rome. And he's asking them to receive her, accept her. Another thing he asked, and this is our third point of a way to encourage unity, is he wants them to be helpful towards Phoebe. Going on to verse 2, he says, "...that you receive her in, uh, in the Lord in a mother worthy of the saints." and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. So he says, hey, help this dear sister of ours. She's a co-laborer for Christ. She's a servant in the church. Not only that, he says, she's been a helper of many, including myself, the Apostle Paul. So we don't know much about her other than that, but she was a helper in the church, a servant in the church, and she even helped the Apostle Paul. And so as she goes to Rome, he's asking the church at Rome to receive her, to welcome her, to help her. Again, he needs to build unity, not only between Phoebe and the church, but himself as well. And then over and over again in this entire section, he wants them to love each other. In a number of different ways, he does this. He, first, he, he asks the church to greet each other, to greet people. He's like, hey, greet my brother so-and-so, greet my my sister so-and-so. I'm not going to repeat those names. It was tough enough doing it one time. So he knows about these brothers and sisters in the church. So before asking them to love one another, he exemplifies love by recognizing and acknowledging others in their faith and their dedication to the Lord. And he he mentions 24 individuals in this church. And it includes men and women and at least one married couple. Along with that, he mentions a group of unnamed people that were in the churches of Aristobulus and Narcissus, the churches in their house. So these men apparently had house churches, and he's greeting all the members of those churches as well. So it's more than just one church in Rome. He's addressing himself to all the churches in Rome. And he's acknowledging them, greet them. As we go further down in the text, look at verse 16. He asks them to greet one another with a holy kiss. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And all the churches of Christ greet you. This was an expression of unity and love by kissing each other on the cheek or the forehead. Right in our culture, and if I said, hey, let's stand and give each other a holy kiss, we would all turn to our spouse and be like, right? It's just not our culture. There's some cultures that do that, right? Some family members do that. They kiss you on the cheek or the forehead. And so don't worry. We're not going to weird you out and say, all right. Part of our application this morning is that we are going to begin the ancient, cherished tradition of holy kissing. No, we're not. But it was an expression of love. His point is to love one another, greet each other in this way, in this manner. So let's move on. So the Apostle Paul is encouraging unity by speaking well to the believers, by asking them to be welcoming, to be helpful. He wants them to love one another. And finally, we go to the next section. After all this welcoming and greeting, he gets to verse 17. And it looks like he goes off topic now. But this also is important to the cause of unity. He wants them to protect each other from false doctrines. Nothing divides the church more than false doctrines and causes shipwreck of many people's faith. Look at what he says in verse 17. I'm going to read this again. He says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions And hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. So he wants the church to protect each other from false doctrines that are contrary to the teaching that they've learned already, the gospel. This is implying that there is a central truth. The truth is not relative, there is one gospel that's been once and for all delivered to the saints. And we are called to defend it. And even within our church, pastors, in churches in general, and throughout the letters, pastors are called to be, they're called what? Shepherds. To protect the flock from false doctrine. And that's one of the things we do as pastors here, to protect the church. We watch each other as well. Even in our teachings, if something comes up that sounds a little weird, we might have to call each other out on it. And I'm sure you guys may do it amongst each other in in Bible study groups that you're in. If somebody is proclaiming false doctrine, then we need to protect each other. There is a one gospel that's been delivered once and for all to the saints. And he's saying, watch those people. Watch them. Keep an eye on them. Sometimes people may not do it deliberately. But he says, sometimes they are. And the New Testament's riddled with warnings about wolves in sheep clothing. He says, watch out for those who cause division. Watch out for those who cause hindrances contrary to teaching, the main teaching. Contrary to the teaching, they've already learned that central doctrine. So he says, not only watch out, but what do you do once you, he says, he gives them something to do once they find somebody, he's doing that. If somebody comes into their church, not only do you watch them or mark them out, keep an eye on them, what does he say in the very next at the very end of this sentence, turn away from them, shun them, reject their teaching. Why? Because look at what he says in verse 18 For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. By their smooth and flattery speech, people don't come out and say, Hey, this is false doctrine that I'm going to give you right now. No, it's smooth and it's flattering. And they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Sometimes it sounds so good, you're like, yeah, that, that, sounds, that sounds okay. We should be loving to everybody, regardless of who they love or who they think they are. Let's not judge. So we need to be careful of such things. And the Apostle Paul, obviously, this was going on even in the first century. We have to watch false doctrine. Again, I don't want us to miss this. This means there is a doctrine that is already written that is central and delivered to them. So he says, reject them, turn away from them, those who are proclaiming false doctrines. Let me give you a few examples of where this has happened over and over again, where he's had to write to churches about this. Turn with me first to the book of Galatians, and let's look at chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. This is very, very important. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Galatia, and he says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, a different truth, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in verse 8. But even if we, meaning the Apostle himself, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what you have, which we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, he is to be accursed. The Apostle Paul includes himself and angelic beings If they come with a different gospel that's already been delivered, then we're to reject them, refuse them. Because guess what? Even well-meaning pastors and preachers somehow get seduced and start preaching a different gospel. Over and over again, we could look through the church history and see how men have been corrupted and influenced by the world and have changed the gospel. And that continues to this day. So we have to be on guard. We have to watch. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'll give you another example of this. 1 Timothy chapter 1, looking at verses 3 through 7. Apostle Paul writes I urge, as I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrine, doctrines nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, strained from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So he's Timothy was written to a young pastor. He's telling the pastor, you need to instruct these men not to preach false doctrine because it's proven that some people have fallen away. So just know if there's a pastor up here or someone that's teaching and they begin to stray towards a little too far, Don't think I won't run up and tackle them and take them down from the pulpit. And hopefully you will, like, do that too. But again, don't miss it. That means there is a truth. There is an absolute black and white truth that we must know in order to detect false doctrine. And we'll get to that in a moment. One last warning from the Apostle Paul is in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 2, verses 14 through 18 where he names names now. 2 Timothy 2, verse 14. He says, Remind them of these things, meaning his congregation, and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of hearers. But be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, Accurately handling the word word of truth, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them, and here's two men in particular who are doing this, according to the Apostle Paul, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, and this is their false doctrine, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. So apparently these two guys have been going around proclaiming that the resurrection of everybody has already taken place. And rightly so, it says some people are getting upset. Going back to our Romans context, remember the unsuspecting. If you let false doctrine in, some people may misunderstand it, be caught off guard and fall away because of it. So he's saying we have to be careful of that. And if you think this doctrine is ridiculous, this doctrine exists to this day within the so-called, and I'm not going to say it's Christian at all, they are called full preterists. Full preterists believe that the resurrection has already happened and Christ is now, that's it, it's over. This is it. And it's like, wow. I mean, I had a good friend, and a good friend, let me back up. Ooh, ten minutes. Uh, an old friend, he introduced me to this, was talking about it's it the first I ever heard of it. I was like, and he was a believer of it. He even asked, hey, do you think your church should be open to hearing a uh, presentation of full preterism? I was like, uh, I don't even know what full preterism is. So let me ch- check. It. Thankfully, I have my wife who's like always looking out for me because I'm maybe too nice sometimes. Hey, that's, you know, her spiritual radar was up. Boop, boop. She's very gifted in that in that way. Sometimes I'm a little naive in that area too trusting in people. And thankfully, you know, I never that never happened and it will never happen. That's a false doctrine. The point is, it exists till this day. Full preterism. There's partial preterism, which is different, and it's not heretical, but full preterism is. That's probably more than you've ever cared to know about full preterism, but it's, it's important. That's a false doctrine that you could be, you know, kind of slip into. Obviously, it was going on in the first century and it has been around now for 21 centuries. So go back to our text, he's warning them. False doctrine. Reject them. Turn away from them. Shun them. Don't let it in. Why? Because it's going to divide. It's going to cause people to stumble. We have to be careful of the doctrine that's been delivered to us. We have to be careful of what we let in our church, who speaks at our church, who leads Bible studies, who teaches the kids back there, who teaches our youth. We're very conscious about that. So he wants them to protect each other from false doctrine, another way that they protect each other, not just by watching out and rejecting them, he says in verse at the end of verse, uh, verse 19, he says, "For the report of your obedience has reached to all." So his point is, is by continually being obedient to the scriptures, that helps you stay away from false doctrine. And he commended them over and over again about their obedience. Now they haven't slipped into that. He's just saying, Be careful. He's just warning them that this could happen because it's happened in other churches. So he's saying, Be careful. Continue to be obedient to the scriptures. And you don't have to worry about being disobedient in such a sense. You're so familiar with what is real that you can detect false things. That reminds you of Hebrews chapter five, verse. 14, the writer says, but solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, meaning familiarity, have their senses trained to be to discern good and evil. Right. They're so used to what's the real thing that when they hear something fake, they their senses are trained to detect that there's something wrong there. You've probably heard it before, you know, how to detect false, you know, uh, money. That they just handle real money, real money, real money. That when something false comes instantaneously, they can detect that. Because they're trained to have their senses discerned. And that almost happens in every profession, I'm sure. You're trained and you focus on one thing that you can detect when something's wrong. God wants us to be that way with his word. That we have his word so much empowering us and in our lives that when false doctrine comes... Our sensors go up. Something's wrong there. We don't have to spend our time searching out false doctrine and learning the intricacies of this doctrine and that religion, you know, just to become familiar with it, to to know that it's wrong. No, you know the truth so much that when you hear something that's contrary to it, you know right away that's false. That's false. So he says, continue to be obedient. He says, But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And he's basically saying here, continue to do the right thing. Continue to learn what is good. And don't be so concerned again about what the evilness is. Or well, you know what? You don't really know about it unless you try it, type of attitude. Or how do you know it's wrong unless you tried it? That's not what he's that's not what he wants them to do. He's just saying be trained in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Dr. John MacArthur wrote, the only reliable way to recognize evil is to be thoroughly familiar with the good. That's what I've been saying in other ways, but I like the way that he said it. The only reliable way to recognize evil is to be thoroughly familiar with the good. And lastly, he reminds them that total victory is coming. He says this at the very end, the God of peace will soon crush Satan, under your feet. It's a reminder that there's coming a day when God's final consummation of Satan's defeat is completed. He inaugurated with with defeating him on the cross, and God defeats Satan daily, over and over again. When somebody else comes to faith in Christ, Satan has been defeated. And then ultimately, in the end, Satan will no longer exist. He will be done with. I don't want to read that. I'm sure you've heard it before. In Revelation 20. Verses 7 through 10. Here is. The description. At the end of the world. When Satan is finally done away with. When victory is fully consummated. It says this. When the thousand years were completed. Are completed. Satan will be, will be released from his prison. And will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. That will be a glorious day when Satan can no longer deceive this world. You're like, what about all the other stuff? Gog, Magog. That's a different study. Sorry. We won't get there now. But the main point is Satan is defeated. There is an ultimate victory alluded to here in Romans chapter 16 verse 20 that that will take place and we have that to look forward to and again just encouraging them to continue on the way that they're living and so let's close with some points of application how can we sustain sustain the unity in our church at renaissance christian church well number one be encouraging as brothers and sisters in the lord As Paul called the Roman church to do, we should do also. We should be encouraging each other as often as we come together. Building up each other's faith. And we've talked about this over and over again. Especially over the past couple of weeks. if we really focused in, if you haven't noticed, on the Christian ministry and fellowship here at the church. One of our responsibilities as brothers and sisters in the Lord is to encourage one another. Secondly be welcoming greeting each other accepting one another in the body of Christ and if you want you could do it with the holy kiss that's fine it's biblical just don't kiss me i'm cool i'm just kidding you could give me an air kiss you know i'm just kidding but it's be welcoming greeting each other loving one another and i and i and i hope that you guys feel that love at this church, it's. I believe, and maybe I'm biased because I'm the pastor here. <laughs> it's a loving church. Really, it's it's a great church. I've been a part of uh, one of the biggest churches in the United States, a local church here. But this one, in my estimation, again, and I'm an unbiased opinion, is the greatest. No, it's no. Each church is great, but I love I love what we have here. And, and I pray that it never goes away until Christ returns. And I pray that nobody uh, uh, leaves this place without feeling welcomed. But it's, it's a way of sustaining unity. As they're we welcome one another, you feel united. You feel a kinship, a bonding that you feel in no other place, even amongst maybe your immediate family. It should be welcoming. How can we sustain unity in our church? Number three, be helpful. Helping one another, just as the Apostle Paul called for the church to help Phoebe in any way that she needed help. We are called to do the same thing. And as I mentioned last week, if you were here, we've done a great job of that as a church. Helping one another when we know of a need the best that we can. And so that helps with the unity of the church. Fourthly, be loving. This kind of goes along with the last one of welcoming, but love one another with a godly love. We're called to do that as a church. Remember I started this sermon out in the very beginning about Christ saying this is how the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Be loving. And fifthly, be watchful. As I alluded to earlier, the job of number one, of, of one of the jobs of the pastor of the church is to be watchful for things that would cause disunity within the church. But guess what? You guys are also to do that for one another as well. Let me read to you a verse that I've kind of alluded to a few times here about being watchful in Jude chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Jude 1, there's only one chapter, so Jude 3 and 4. You're like, I didn't even know it we had jude i just skip right over to revelation on that one all the time it says beloved this is jude writing well i was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation i felt it necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints for certain persons have crept in unnoticed; those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Here, Jude's reminding the church, hey, we need to contend for this faith. Again, that was once and for all delivered to the saints. There's one message that's been delivered. There's not a bunch of different ones. That's why you can't say, well, all religions in the world are right. Either they're they're only, either only one's right and they're, or they're all wrong. They can't coexist with each other. Either one's right or every one of them is wrong. There's one truth, one truth that's been handed down to the saints. And he's saying, contend for that. We should protect each other. Do not let false doctrine into this church. Protect your brothers and sisters. Fight for them. There's another verse I want to share with you, and that's in the book of Titus. Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. I like this one as well. Titus three, ten and 11. It says, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that in such a manner is perverted, and is sinning, being self-condemned. So the point I wanted to bring up here is, in our protecting one another, is don't just like you see somebody saying something you disagree with, and you're like, you're out of here, buddy. Get out. (laughs) We're rejecting you. pastor said, I could shun you, reject you, throw you out. He says, after a first and second, we're to warn each other first. Because maybe that person doesn't know they're proclaiming a false doctrine. Or maybe, and they're just ignorant of it. And so we as brothers and sisters who are stronger in the faith, maybe, warn them. Show them that it's wrong. But if that person continually wants to fight about it and and make an issue about it and cause dissension and hindrances, remember back in Romans 16, he says that you just reject them. Get them out. And that's part of church discipline. We've had to deal with that a number of times at this church confronting people about what they're doing this is wrong this is unbiblical well you just don't want me to have a good life you just don't want me to be happy no that's not true we want you to be happy but we're concerned more with your holiness first and you won't ultimately be happy till you live according to the word of god and so that's not the funnest thing to do to confront people i know but you have to you're being watchful it's actually loving to confront somebody If your children were running out into the street and they were going to get hit by a car, would you say, well, you do what you want. I don't want to ruin your day. No, you tell them. And you know what? We have brothers and sisters in the Lord, maybe. We have friends and family who are running the wrong way. We need to lovingly tell them in a way that what they're doing is wrong. And we're not doing it because we're bigoted or we're... We hate you. It's because we love you. That's not what God has for you. We're to be watchful, again, particularly in this church, of false doctrine that would divide our church. So if somebody came in here trying to say, hey, the resurrection already happened. This is it. We would say, no, that's not true. You misunderstand Scripture. Let's walk through Scripture. And if they received it and they turned from it, then great. We won a brother. So Scripture says. But if they continue to proclaim that, then we'd have to say, you know what, this church, is. we don't teach that, we don't believe that, we don't believe the Bible says that, therefore you are no longer allowed at this church. We're not going to allow you to get a foothold in here and steer people away. That's the loving thing to do. And just know as a pastor and my fellow pastors, we would do that for our church. We feel that we are called by God to do that. And so if you ever need help lovingly, gently rebuking somebody or, or helping you out in that area, then please come to the elders of the church because we want to keep unity, sustained unity in our church. And lastly, know how can we sustain unity in our church? Be assured. And when I say be assured, know that, guess what? Despite what's going on in this world, or even in the church and in your life, that one day Satan is going to be crushed, ultimately defeated. That's our, not just hope, it's our assurance. It's in Scripture that one day, as I read earlier, Satan will ultimately be destroyed. And we'll close with this one last section of Scripture. It's one of my favorites. First Corinthians 15, 50-58. The Apostle Paul describing the second coming of the Lord. He says this. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be we will excuse me, but we will all be changed in the moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must put on the imperishable, and the mortal must put on immortality. But when the perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, so because of this victory, because of this assurance, church, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That is a promise to each and every one of us. That, hey, look towards eternity. That one day the Lord is coming back. So all that we're suffering through, all that we're going through, no matter how the world is falling apart around us and changing every order that God has created, know that you remain steadfast, immovable, and continue your work for the Lord. It is not in vain. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your infallible word, that the assurance of your promises are true. And we thank you for giving them to us, recording them in Holy Scripture, and preserving them for close to 2,000 years and even longer as we look at the Old Testament. And I pray, Lord God, this morning that we as a church would stand united together for the glory of your gospel, for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, that we might proclaim your name until the day that you return and take us home and defeat Satan, throw him in everlasting fire forever and ever. Lord God, strengthen us and empower us to do this as we leave today. I pray for those who are struggling with their faith, who are maybe even doubting that this is the word of God. Lord God, that you would open their eyes and their ears, that they might hear what the Spirit is saying to them, that they might see the power of your resurrection, and they might know it for themselves, that they might be transformed by it, and they would join the rest of us in contending earnestly for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints help us to do that lord by the power of your holy spirit and all the saints of god said amen